This episode may include sensitive stories, topics, or themes that may be difficult to hear. Please take care of yourself and your well-being should something arise for you. Welcome to the latest episode of Punk Therapy, Psychedelic Underground Neural Kindness. I'm Dr. T, working on my PhD. And I'm the Truth Fairy, coming to you from the underground. Together, we hope to inspire integrity, courage, kindness, creativity, and rigor in the fast-growing industry of psychedelic healing. Welcome, everyone, to Psychedelic Underground Neural Kindness Punk Therapy. Today, myself, Dr. T, is going to be speaking with uh, the Truth Fairy, who's going to be dropping some truth bombs on y'all. And today, we're going to be talking about neural states in psychedelic ceremony. So, uh, when somebody moves into different sort of states of autonomic arousal, different emotional states, How do we work with that? How do we work with that effectively while they're on different medicines? And uh, how do we approach that that situation? So Truth Fairy, I wanted to ask you just to kick things straight off Mm -hmm. um, about what kind of maps are out there or what kind of maps do you use to understand, to map out the different neural states that people can go in and out of during session? Well, that's a great question. And where I'd like to begin that conversation, Dr. T, is that we need to learn these maps before we start to work with medicines. I'm a stickler about that. And my resources are um, obviously Stephen Porges and his polyvagal theory and how Uh, Deb Dana has taken an incredible uh, approach to that with her polyvagal flip chart, which is a really great asset. And I've been studying with uh, Sharon Stanley and her uh, neural states and her beautiful diagrams. And I think it's a skill that we need to start to cultivate before we even come to medicine work. Because these are subtleties and sometimes not so subtleties that we need to start to learn to listen to what's happening beneath the words and what is happening in uh, someone's face, what's happening in their eyes, what's happening in their prosody, what's happening in their posture, what's happening in their activation in their bodies. So it's um, because once you're under medicine and things are moving quickly, it's harder to catch what's happening. And so I'll I'll just leave it at that for now to say that um, learning, how does ventral vagal look? How does sympathetic response look? What does a parasympathetic dorsal vagal shutdown look like? How does that show up? When we can learn these really well, then we can help clients track that, we can help ourselves track that in ourselves, and we can help a client track it in themselves. And I say this with a caveat because it's going to be so different on different medicines. Okay, cool. I love it. I love it. I've been writing a little piece of some research about this exact topic and 
talking about Porges' kind of model, which has got these clear states of arousal that he talks about. You know, when you're in a stress response, you might reach for the fight or flight response. That autonomic arousal kicks in. Your um, brain goes into fight or flight. The HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis gets fired up. In 15 seconds. To, in 15 seconds. Is that yeah. the time? Yeah. Yeah, you wow. got 15 seconds. Yeah. Wow, that's a quick cascade of, of hormones and, and energy that just gets fired up. So you can move into that fight or flight response. And then if you perceive or you neuroceive, as Forges talks about, um, if you perceive that the threat is too much for you to handle through fight or flight, then you might instead go into a complete shutdown and freeze. Um, and something interesting that that comes up for me, which I'm, I'm curious about, is whether um, that's actually true, whether you actually need to exhaust the possibility of your fight and flight response before you move into a shutdown response and whether there is a possibility that sometimes people move into a freeze or a shutdown response um, almost from the neutral spot without kind of going through the fight or flight, recognising that that's, gonna, that's not going to work and then into, into freeze. I wonder what you thought about that. Well, a well-worn shutdown response goes very, very quickly, and it, it is chronic. And if we feel trapped over a long span of time, then you get what is called these sort of chronic depression states where it doesn't feel like there's a fight anymore. It's just been in a collapsed state for so long. It's very, very hard on the system. And that's that dissociative state, that numbness going through the motions. I'm, I'm barely alive. I've kind of disappeared. I don't even know. I'm not knowing. I'm not being anymore. And underneath it, are perceptions of terror. There is a contraction, but you also see that in that kind of flaccid state where I have just kind of given up. I'm not even fighting anymore. And um, so sometimes we can sort of even, I think over time when the circuit, the collapse and the shutdown circuit is well-worn, you just go there so quickly that you're not even fighting anymore. And we can see that in people that have given up or, or, or it seems like they've given up, right? So... Or we have what's called the the brace collapse. And the brace collapse is really at the root of complex trauma. It's that that drive to survive, that bracing, and that immediate kind of collapse. I'm going to try, but I give up, but I'm going to try, but I'm going to give up, right? And um, that is that, that deep survival urge and then a quick shutdown. So some people are more brace, some people are more collapse, and some people do both. I know I do both. Right. Some people oscillate between the two. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it so it really depends on your system of you know how what what were you what were you contending with what was your resiliency and how quickly is this exhaust happened because I know that when I'm in a in sort of difficult reenactments of trauma I can give up pretty quickly I don't exhaust myself I'm I'm getting older I get exhausted more quickly (laughs) you know maybe the fight isn't what it it used to be 
you know, but, but maybe in some, some ways that's teaching me a kind of surrender when it comes to medicines as well. So we will bring it into that realm because that's so important. Uh, I, I think what the, the, the subject, the topic you've brought up, Dr. T, is a complex one. I think we could spend many podcasts on this one. I, I almost want to like pump my vagal break and say, wait a minute before we talk about bringing it into medicine. Although I do have a good anecdote about that and I'll get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Maybe we should... Um slow it down a bit and maybe explain just for the listeners who aren't familiar with um, polyvagal theory what what we're actually talking about um, (laughs) with a vagal break and the vagus nerve and things like that so most people have usually heard about sympathetic versus parasympathetic you know the sympathetic arousal is your fight flight response parasympathetic some people call it the rest and digest and so one is activating and one is kind of deactivating But um, what Porges did with polyvagal theories, he made that a slightly more nuanced, slightly more complicated model. And and his theory talks about how in our evolutionary history with uh, the common ancestor that we shared with reptiles, um, we had that system, that basic system of arousal and then um, uh, shutdown if we needed to. So if there was like a predator, if there was some serious threat, we might go into fight flight, try to deal with it. But then if that threat was too overwhelming, then we would just totally shut down and freeze. And you can see that sometimes in, there's some like animal shows you can watch where like the prey will hunt down this small little like animal and the animal will actually just completely shut down and pretty much look like it's dead. Right. And interestingly, a lot of, yeah, the opossum and a lot of like predators, they actually almost need the chase in order That's for right. their nervous system to get the activation to, to hunt them down. And so, yeah, and to feel death, that you're they... eating something alive. It's yeah, still alive, yeah. right? And you get to kill it. Yeah. <laughs> right. You get to kill it. Yeah. Oh. Um, yeah. So there's, there's an interesting, like, yeah, there's, there's some interesting um, reflections that could be made about the interpersonal dynamics mm-hmm. of, of, um, states of arousal and how certain states in one person correspond with another in exactly the same way as a state of arousal in a predator corresponds with a state of um, feigning death in another, if that makes sense. Right? Absolutely. So, yeah, so there's this, um, this idea that at some point in our history, mammals actually diverged from this kind of basic system and we developed a second branch branch to the vagus nerve. So instead of just the dorsal vagal, which was responsible for the shutdown and the freeze, we developed the ventral vagal, which is responsible for all of our complex social connection, engagement systems that we have. That's right. And, you know, just on an evolutionary uh, timeline, the, the dorsal vagal parasympathetic is 500 million years ago. The sympathetic is 400 million years ago, just to put this into context, and the ventral vagal is 200 million years ago. So, and and in the same way that the brain developed, the autonomic nervous system also developed. And so we went from that that death feign into fight or flight, and then fight or flight then developed into this kind of uh, social 
gathering, this communication, a collaboration, an embodied, uh, the, the tribe that takes care of each other, watch, watches for each other. And what's incredible when we think about polyvagal system, it, it's the ways that the autonomic nervous system works. And it's how we come into social engagement. It's how we go into protective defense. It's how we, um, come, as you say, come into rest when the, well, let's go back to the, actually, I'm going to just say, let's go back to the nerve. It's really important. It's called the wandering nerve. It's the longest nerve in the body. And as you said, there's a, a, a ventral branch, meaning front branch, and there's a dorsal branch, meaning the back branch and the, the, the ventral innervates uh, the eyes, you know, facial muscles, uh, the larynx and the pharynx, the heart, lungs, it's everything above the diaphragm. And then we've got a dorsal branch, which goes below the diaphragm, uh, innervating, you know, digestive organs. I'm not, I'm not going to keep it, keep it quite simple. And it moves all the way down to the genitals. And we, we have this ventral vagal, which is the first parasympathetic. So that means that we can come out of this high state of mobilization, which is what sympathetic sympathetic arousal is, sympathetic response is, is mobilizing. It's fight or flight. But what the the ventral vagal nerve does when it's beautifully tonified, when we practice its tonification, is that we're moving around, we're mobilizing, but we're also calm, connected, embodied. We're noticing any signs of distress. We're supporting ourselves, supporting others, possibilities. We have possibilities available to us. Um, And what can happen in our society and what can happen in states of fear is that we get stuck in sympathetic response. And this can happen uh, entering a medicine session. We can be in high arousal fear and, you know, continue in that high, high arousal mobilization or that we get into such a high uh, arousal mobilization that under medicine we can go into complete shutdown, dissociation. Uh, we can start in dissociation and stay in dissociation or we can be in this dissociation without knowing it and all of a sudden the medicine kicks our butts and there we are in a quite a terrified state and that's what has been in dissociation because in Sharon Stanley's model we've got optimal arousal in the blue in the center then we both go up and drop down into an orange state which is high arousal and low arousal so anxiety, uh, fear, anger, you can't sustain that, so you drop down, but it's still there, it's not been taken care of, but you drop down, you go into this withdrawal, this exhaustion, this fatigue, and then if that state sort of continues, these perceptions of danger moves into perception of life threat, then you go into hyper and hypo arousal, and this is a difficult state on the body, it is the dorsal vagal state, in its survival adaptation. It's not easy on our internal organs because it's the body essentially preparing to die. And it's, it's shutting down and it's it's like having on your, your parking brake while you're driving. That's what p- PTSD can feel like. You're, you're, you're revving and you're parking at the same time and it's really hard on our system. So we don't wanna be there. We'd like to be in that, the ventral vagal, that safe, social, connected, you know, a voice that communicates safety, 
a voice that, you know, receiving that voice, soothing voice that communicates safety. We want the ventral vagal overseeing the sympathetic and the dorsal parasympathetic. When it oversees that, then, that's, then, then we get the right amount of mobilization. You're using the right amount of energy for what you're doing. And then when it's overseeing the dorsal vagal, then you get that really healthy digestion. So it's a complex, incredible nerve, and it's a it's a simple yet complex theory, but so, so necessary, I think, from an ethical point of view, to learn it to do medicine work. Mm, yeah, and it's so interesting, you know, for, for our listeners, as, as the truth fairy is speaking right now, she's using all of these great gestures. She's leaning towards the screen. She's got this epic <laughs> smile on her face. And, you know, I can feel in this moment with her that we have entered this kind of like relational synchrony, ventral vagal to ventral vagal, you know, in the tone of our voice, you can hear the way that she's speaking and I can see it. You can't see it, but I can see it in her face. You know, there's this, there's this kind of dynamic that's going on here, this kind of flow state. Um, and I, I guess that I want to phrase that as a question for for you truth fairy mm -hmm. um and i'm thinking about dr shaw alan shaw and his work and how that kind of comes into this process of okay yeah it's great we've now mapped the neural states and the ways that we can move into these different defensive states we are recognizing that the ventral vagal is the the place that we want to be kind of seated in mm -hmm. Um, but how do we get there? How do we get into ventral vagal? And I'll, I'll just drop one little piece that I read the other day, which was about um, the, the idea that the, the ventral vagal complex, you mentioned the ventral break before, mm -hmm. it's, it's um, the, the neurons that are part of that network are highly myelinated. And what that means is that they're able to transmit information much more quickly than their counterpart, which is unmyelated nerve fibers. And so um, what's going on in the ventral vagal complex is this really rapid, really fast, unconscious kind of implicit communication that's happening between you and another person. Um, and so that's what enables this thing called the ventral break to, to put on the break so quickly is because it's such a fast system, it can respond rapidly. And what I read the other day was that the process of myelination of that part of your um, brain is um, really, really active in the first year of life. And particularly in the first three months of life is when that myelination happens. And so if that's the case, then you can imagine the, the interactions that a child has with their primary caregiver in those first three months that are not language based, that are just eye contact, tone of voice, facial expressions are so important for the development of that myelinated pathway back to ventral vagal. Which slows down reaction time, essentially. And what you're talking about is co-regulation, right? Um, yeah. Co-regulating allows that, that myelination of the uh, vagus. Now, it's really important for our listeners to just differentiate. And I want to tell a story in a moment. It's starting to bubble up in me, so I'm thinking I better tell the story. But uh, why don't you tell our listeners, Dr. T, which branch of it is myelinated and which one is not myelinated. And myelination is a fatty sheath. And when it's 
when you've got the, fat, the fatty sheath, does that speed up or slow down communication? That's that important little thing to get. Yeah, so that's the, it speeds it up, right? It's, it's going yeah. faster. Yeah. yeah, so the more myelination that you have of the, the ventral vagal complex, which is the part that, you know, slows you down, brings you into safety, brings you into social connection yeah. with other people, when, yeah. that, when that pathway is highly myelinated, then your capacity to, to go into that neural state and into safety and interconnection with others is faster and easier. Yeah. Um, and so that's one of the goals of therapy in general or healing work mm-hmm. or medicine mm-hmm. work is to, um, to myelinate, to increase the myelination of that, of that pathway. Yeah, which is commonly called tonifying the, the vagus nerve as giving it the tone. And um, so this is a, might be a great segue into, uh, you asked about different medicines, but I do want to tell you a, a story about a wonderful connection I have with a shaman in uh, a province adjacent to mine. And we decided to work together and have a women's weekend. Uh, this was about three or four years ago. And it was going to be a three-day weekend, a curated group of 14 women with um, somatic relational uh, practices to get ourselves ready to work with the ayahuasca. And most of the participants had not worked with ayahuasca. Some of them had um, in those sort of situations where you come in, uh, you've kind of driven off the street, you come in on Friday night, you're doing medicine, which is unfortunately uh, how it goes these days with our compressed lives. And if you can't get away to Peru or you can't get away to Brazil and you're lucky enough to have a shaman come to your province. You probably know I'm in Canada now. But uh, so oftentimes we leave our homes and we've done the dieta, but we've gotten out of our cars. We go in and, you know, you walk into the ceremony room and you can smell the medicine and you know by 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock you're already working with this. And, you know, uh, shamans work in different ways. But what we discussed, she had uh, taken her somatic relational training and... I had done my own training in a different way. And I said to her, listen, why don't I take the time to regulate people, co-regulate people, get the room really regulated together uh, before we do the medicine. I'll do all that processing work ahead of time. She says, fantastic. Um, And we did spend many, many hours on um, grounding on feeling the earth, on feeling our energetic roots in our bodies, feeling, sensing our sits bones, uh, dropping down into the body, noticing sensations, tracking sensations, uh, orienting to each other, gentle gaze, um, sound, making gentle sounds. And those orienting exercises that orient us to the present time. And what she said, by the time we got everyone, this took probably about three, four hours that we did bonding exercises and just gently getting to know each other, not going, so what's your trauma? Why are you here? But that just gentle letting people come forward in their own time. And what she said was that was the most regulated room she had ever worked with. So that by the time we got to ceremony, Uh, And what I really appreciate about this shaman is that she says that ayahuasca can be be very dysregulating. And it can be very dysregulating. 
And it really, and I know I've felt highly dysregulated at times in the midst of it, and other people have, our systems are already there. I mean, in trauma, in, in trauma, we are, and we've talked about this word dis, but I'm going to say dysregulation. It's the way that we know it right now, for lack of a better word. But our systems are already there. We're, we're out of the tribe. We're, we're not in these tribal communi- communities that are embodied and watching out for each other. We're lucky if we have a good group of friends. But we're coming into these new communities. We don't know each other. So it's important that we start to build on these tribal practices that are about orienting gently to each other, sensing each other, sensing the space, sensing the light, sensing the sound, the energy of the place so that we can make these little tribal communities so that we, when we come to our work, we're not going into these, yes, terror may come up, but we can be not overtaken by it. We can be observers of these, these embodied witnesses of these states that are arising. So we're not, we might need to scream out, but we're not screaming out endlessly, disturbing everyone else's journeys and appropriately finding these expressions as needed. So what I really appreciated about her was that encouragement to let's get this be a regulated room. So it was so beautiful to see people going into their journeys, not terrified, but actually embodied. And it felt like the quality of the work was very different. Now, you know, as I say this, there's this other thing coming up is that Part of what is colonizing is that we're taking indigenous medicines and using them therapeutically for psychological problems, but I think that we can keep it in an indigenous way if we look at it from the perspective of the autonomic nervous system, which has been developing for millions of years. So if we look at it from uh, how do we come into these embodied practices together as, as modern tribes to take care of each other in the room, then we can take it out of this colonizing therapeutic mind into what has been here for so long. And then the medicine journeys can be deeply meaningful in a way that our bodies can process. And one more thing I want to add, because you asked about it earlier, is I distinctly remember I had this wonderful memory the other day of all of a sudden in the middle of my medicine journey, I didn't even know, but she was there and three other helpers were there and they were all on me. I didn't even know that I had gone into numb shutdown and they were squeezing my arms and they were squeezing my legs and they had noticed through the beautiful observation from her trauma-informed perspective, she could see however she saw it, that I was going in deep shutdown. She says, you've been carrying a lot of trauma for other people. I was totally dissociating. I was not there. And she had all her helpers and everyone was squeezing my body. And I came back. And that was, even just now thinking about it, I have such a uh, overwhelmed, a wonderful feeling of warmth coming through my body that someone noticed because I wasn't there. And how many times in my life I have not been there, which is parasympathetic dorsal vagal shutdown survival. And it doesn't help me not to know that I'm not there. I've done that a lot. So for an attuned shaman to come and say, hey, sweetheart, you're not here, you're gone, and, and squeeze, I could now come back in and start to get the messages of the medicine. So that to me is a a really beautiful illustration of the, the, the attuned ethical shaman 
in modern society, not to say that the shamans and the shipibo, they are not ethical, not attuned, but it's, it's the way we're bridging the, the indigenous, mm. the neuroscience, the, the newer sciences and bridging them because we do need to have a way to hold both. That was a yeah. long spiel there, Dr. T. That's an epic spiel. So many things have, <laughs> have come up as you're sharing. Thank you for sharing. That's a cool story. And mm-hmm. I, um, I've been in a lot of ceremonies where there hasn't been that attunement and I do reflect on that and I sometimes wish that, that, that there was. You know, So often when I do an ayahuasca ceremony, it's in a room that is so dark that you couldn't even see if I had gone into some dysregulated state. You wouldn't know if you were the person sitting in the front of the room. All that you can really track is um, whether people are still in the room or not. But mm-hmm. the rest is kind of a mystery, but depending mm-hmm. on what kind of sounds you hear from them. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's something that I definitely would like to see more of or I would like to feel more of because I've gone into states of terror. I've gone into states of anger. I've gone into states of like intense, like flight response, like, oh my God, I just want to be anywhere but here. I can please yeah. everyone get out or I need to get out, you know, and there's this real like escape and that's when I end up going for getting out of the, the yurt and going for a walk and just kind of sitting on the earth and you know, putting my hand in the soil. Trying to and and so great you had the consciousness to do that. So how did you know to do that for yourself? Step one was uh, get out. <laughs> and that was uh-huh. just like reactive, you know, trauma. Like, I just need to get out of here. Um, yeah. But then once I'm outside, it's like, okay, all right. <sighs> let's take a few deep breaths. Let's come back to center. Let's, yeah, drop down and, to the earth. And where you went was you went to the earth. Yeah. You said, I need to get outside. And you yeah. went to the earth. Yeah. That, that there's something very significant about that yeah right you need yeah. to go you need to go back to the earth yeah because we have created these something was pulling me dead yeah 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 so you know what's interesting and, and this is what i'm thinking a lot about and i really want to be careful how i word this is about you know psychology if from its colonial roots and we know that it's white male and i i don't have problems with white men white men but i want to say that it's it's a it's a very specific perspective from one person or the person creating the methodology and what is so important here is you know we use the word ego a lot and the word ego has really come into uh psychedelic medicine as well you know ego buster or you know break through the ego or ego death which again is just again an overlay of the psycho- psychological model that came from white europe and so i i, I think in a more holistic trauma informed polyvagal autonomic nervous system neuroception point of view we can start to see that yes we have created defenses and defenses that saved our lives and they needed to and we do know that these defenses require a lot of energy and they require a lot of energy to maintain but how can we create co-regulated environments where we're not left alone to struggle over and over and over again yes i understand that you're the only one that 
can sort of shift your life, but we, we heal in relationship. We are healing in our current relationships, whether it's renewing our relationship with the earth, whether it's renewing our relationship with others. And for those of us that have had to go so far away out of relationship with a soul has had to go so far away to take care of itself. It can be so re-traumatizing for someone to go back into those terror states without a human presence, without someone just offering a containment of touch or support or a hand. And we can keep floundering there and getting lost because I know for me, I've got a well-worn dorsal vagal shut down. And when I'm there, it, it's taken me years to get out of, which is commonly called depression or clinical depression. But it was actually, I was in such a profound shutdown state, so wanting to die that I just went numb and flat. And when I find myself there sometimes in medicine journeys, um, we, we need social engagement. We need social engagement to come out of dorsal vagal. And this is where we can, I think, make the mistake of in medicine is to leave someone stuck there mm. because it's through social engagement that people come out and it's what they haven't gotten. You know, uh, I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to track these states in myself and maybe ask for help in those moments, but not everybody else knows to do that. Yeah. And not everybody sets up a container where there's permission to do that or yeah, a lot of people just don't know that, that that's, um, needed or that if it happened that that would um it has the potential to radically shift the experience that we're having in the psychedelic in the moment under the psychedelic you know and so that that's really powerful i really i really love this idea of bringing you know when i thought about this conversation that we were going to have and i thought about uh, regulation and co-regulation my mind went straight to the whole therapist client dynamic one-on-one -on -one, kind of mm -hmm. mirroring the dynamic mm -hmm. that so often happens in childhood with a child and a parent and sort of the the opportunity for the therapist and the client to enter into a kind of um, relational synchrony that mirrored the childhood dynamic and, and helped the client to, um, to co-regulate and to learn some new regulation strategies in the context of the safe container of a therapist who was regulating themselves and so I went straight to this like one-on-one -on -one situation but I wasn't thinking about all of the potential of group work mm -hmm. and, I, and I, with, with something like ayahuasca in particular I think it's so important because when what I find when people drink ayahuasca together they get brought into the group think they get brought into the group dynamic whether they like it or not because of the nature of that medicine it kind of connects you to the people around you often and, you know, I've had experiences where I felt like I'm not purging my own material. I'm pur mm -hmm. purging something that's in the group, right? But, you know, if the group doesn't have that, um, that regulation together, that mm -hmm. familiarity, that body-based kind of um, yeah. regulation, then all of a sudden you're purging these really deep material for the group, but you're not feeling kind of safe and secure in the group. Or at least I've, I've experienced that. And so mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. yeah, especially with something like ayahuasca, that's so important. And that brings me to a question because mm. we've spoken about uh, and we've alluded to the fact that we're going to talk about how different medicines tend to 
um, provoke or how one might work with different medicines and these different states. So mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about your experiences with, you know, ayahuasca versus, say, mushrooms versus, mm-hmm. say, MDMA, ketamine, 5-MeO. These, sure. these are the main ones that sort of spring to mind. How do they present themselves in different ways? Well, <clears throat> really important to say that um, <laughs> this is this is going to be so full of contradictions. I'm going to say this right now. <laughs> Dosage is going to be, play a big part in it as well. Small doses versus large doses uh, can play a part. I'm going to say can. And uh, different medicines can play a part uh, with it as well. So I, instead of saying, you know, MDMA, ketamine, psilocybin, da da da. And uh, this is what I want to say. There's so many different truths here and different states in a person because it, someone in a dissociated state with a, you know, big whack of mushrooms may not actually, nothing may actually happen until we've worked with their system a little bit to ha- slowly help them ground enough to allow things to come out of dissociation because that dissociation will shut things down with no with hefty amounts of psilocybin right and then we can also get these sort of therapeutic doses of mdma and this is what i'm like questioning i'm not saying anything anyone's doing anything wrong but i'm really questioning these euphoric states that don't come out of an embodied place because sure we can have these big euphoric state and it feels so fantastic and it's so open and I love my mother all of a sudden and I love this other person, I've forgiven my ex and all this, but but that's not our day to day. That's not the way it is all the time. And yes, we may. So in the midst of that, how can we still have an embodied awareness as things come up and things come up quickly and they can start to come up very, very quickly under these medicines when those inhibitions and the defenses are down and things are coming up very rapidly. This is where I really love Sharon's work is that we want, when energy comes up too quickly, we can have a headache. It's a lot of energy shooting up so quickly and it doesn't really help us to have all that energy shooting up if the other part of it is 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 contracting if the skull if the cranium is contracting holding that in yes we can say you've got a headache but that's also very rapidly moving energy and this is when and we can't make meaningful transformation when the energy is coming so fast we can't track it so sometimes we need to be able to help a client say can we slow this down a little bit so that you can stay connected to the energy as it starts to come up. What does this mean? And this is where, and we'll be talking about this in our podcast to come, but there's this new way of working, which is integrating at the same time that you're in the medicine work, rather than the integration happening afterwards. Right? And Right. <laughs> right? I was thinking that like, as you were saying, I was like, oh, yeah, God, yeah. This, is like this is like in the moment integration. Um, yeah, sorry. Keep going. Yeah, it is right. It, it is that, and so rather than here's the medicine journey, and then later we look at the content, which is another way of doing it. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just another way of doing it. And I'm interested in this 
moment by moment recognition. So it's not just this incredible euphoric journey I had. And now I see how does your intention relate to the content of this euphoria. Euphoria also being a way that we don't process terror sometimes, right? So we need to be able to toggle a little bit within our sessions. When, so for example, with MDMA and 3MMC, you can do that. That's what's so great about those medicines. You can stay conscious enough to do that. Some other medicines like psilocybin, you're at four milligrams, at four, did I say milligram? Four, four grams, sorry, not four milligrams, four grams. Um, sometimes it is helpful for those that are of us that are very coherent to lose coherence and drop down into these sort of uh, archetypal states, you know. And again, <laughs> thank goodness when you can have someone be attuned to you in those moments or else I'm a re-traumatized child again in that same terror and I'll just go back into my shutdown state. And I did recently come out of a medicine session and more shut down than I had gone in. And I had to work myself, knowing what I had, I worked myself through that to come back to vitality. Mm, so Interesting. You know, I have a colleague who talks about this as well, actually, this idea of kind of integrating in the moment, but not, not in that way. Um, and this person works more with sexuality and trauma mm -hmm. as it relates to sexuality. And they, and I, I just think there's a really interesting analogy that's going on here or a mirror between psychedelic work and sexual work and, and trauma. Mm. And, um, and the suggestion that they talk about is that when we start to engage with someone sexually and we start to approach the climatic state, the euphoric state in, in a sexual encounter, that our trauma responses can often come online and the higher we reach, the closer we get to this ultimate state, um, the more those trauma responses can come online. And so that's the work of kind of Tantra and those, those sort of modern somatic sexuality practices is how do you work with the trauma when it comes up um, as you approach climax in sexual practices? And the idea there is to kind of meet it in the moment and be really gentle and slow things right down and integrate in the moment and there's just a really interesting analogy between psychedelics and sort of like you know people talk about sometimes when they have sex that it's like it's animalistic and they almost they almost go out of their body and they just like they disembody yeah 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 and yeah. disembodiment happens with meditation disembodiment happens with uh sexuality disembodiment happens with um psychedelic work and we are perpetuating more of that disembodiment if we're not tuning into body-based practices. And these are body-based practices that have been around. They're ancient and they were necessary and they're kind. That's the neural kindness right there of our punk therapy. And, you know, I'm just noticing that we're at 41 minutes, uh, Dr. T, and we want it to be judicious not to overwhelm people's nervous systems and you know leave them wanting to come back for more what do you think what what's what's your your nugget that you want to leave everyone with here today what's really sort of living in your system about what we've talked about i think the the nugget that i want to leave people with is it's around um, the opportunity that's available for us um, for those of you who are interested in holding space, but also people who want to attend space or that group co-regulation when we go into psychedelic spaces for that deep healing work. And, um, and just the, the importance of this 
um, this embodied approach and this slow approach um, for the integration, exactly what we were just talking about for the integration, you know, when people have those really far out there experiences and they do leave their body and they do have pretty far out there experiences, it's often really difficult to make sense of that afterwards. So if you can stay close to the threshold and kind of not lose your mind, if you will, <laughs> and, um, and just meet it right at that edge, then um, there's some really cool potential for, you know, restructuring your neural pathways, creating new opportunities for how you relate to the world in a way that is sustainable. Absolutely. And I love that you said that because that's what we want to be able to do is not just as Gabor Mate so brilliantly says, you know, just to go have an experience and come back and, and then it's lost and then you're back in your own patterns. But in a way that from the medicine and the autonomic nervous system and all those levels of the body and the spirit and the soul and the body and the connectivity of the group, you can hold that in a way where it can translate into your life. And I think that maybe that's what we're talking about here when we talk about how do we work with the neural states. And I would love to revisit this car this conversation and talk more specifically with each medicine, but this is a little taster here to get everyone curious and interested. And when we do have, you know, that comment section of our podcast, we welcome any comments uh, about this subject. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a wrap there for us. And um, welcome to any uh, underground therapists and, uh, and the above ground therapists and everything that's happening right now. May we move forward with kindness and diligence and warmth. That concludes this episode. We hope you found it meaningful and integrative. Remember to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or Spotify and kindly share the link with your friends and colleagues. If you want to contact us, you can reach us at info at punktherapy.com. And remember to punk your inner wisdom. <laughs>